we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And we're recording this on June 30th because of the Supreme Court ruling in the Remain in Mexico case. And we're going to be releasing the podcast early. We may or may not have one released on the usual schedule of Thursdays because it's a newsy event, obviously. As we'll discuss, it may not be as important as some people are making it out to be, but it is a pretty important ruling. And to discuss it, we have two people who know a good deal about the subject, about the lawsuit itself, about the issues that surround it. Andrew Arthur, an analyst with the center, has long experience both on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch relating to immigration. And George Fishman, who likewise has extensive experience both in the executive and legislative branches. And we're going to be talking about what is in this ruling, what isn't in this ruling, and what it means and what are we going to expect in the future. So let's go first to you, Art. What is the punchline here about this ruling? Well, in a post at the time that the Supreme Court had taken this case up, I said that it could be the most significant immigration ruling ever, but that's not the way that it came out. The court actually issued a very narrowly tailored ruling. First, it said that remain in Mexico in the statute is discretionary, and therefore courts cannot force DHS to return migrants back across the border to Mexico. Second, it found that Secretary Mayorkas's second memo terminating MPP was actually a final agency action that shouldn't have been given short shrift by the Fifth Circuit, as the circuit court did. And third, it ruled that inferior courts, district courts, and circuit courts don't have the ability to issue injunctive relief. They do have subject matter jurisdiction over certain actions in the INA, but when it comes to specific provisions in the INA, that courts lack the ability to issue injunctive relief. Now, the injunctions where basically one judge somewhere can freeze a executive policy is something that was used against the Trump administration all the time on immigration. They'd find a judge somewhere in San Francisco and he would say, well, I don't like this. And so you can't do it until the merits are resolved and it's fully decided. And what that was basically a tactic to run out the clock on the Trump administration and prevent them from doing things. So if this limits those kind of injunctions going forward, George, I just want to ask you, you know, how broad is this? In other words, what does it limit judges from doing? And what implications might that have for a future, say, a Ron DeSantis administration trying to do immigration and facing a judiciary that was trying to stop him? Well, as I think Arnold Schwarzenegger once said, Art, this is personal. And it is personal because in 1996, 
when I was a green behind the ears. Is that wet behind the ears? Wet behind the ears. Uh, Maybe green too, for all I know. But uh, <laughs> you were single, so I mean, uh, anyway. Staffer on the House Judiciary Committee, I had a small role in the enactment of Lamar Smith's Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, the most significant immigration enforcement legislation enacted maybe ever. And one of its themes, as the Supreme Court has recognized, was to prevent courts from being able to derail executive branch efforts to enforce the immigration law. And there was a provision put in, I didn't write it, but a provision put in the bill became law saying that injunctive relief cannot be issued against provisions in the statute and their implementing regulations dealing with enforcing the immigration law, the new enforcement provisions put into the law. And for a quarter century, that provision has largely been enforced in the absence for years and years, courts have been not just the Trump administration, but courts have been enjoining and stopping and immigration enforcement efforts by the administration. And the courts have never barred those injunctions because of the 96 statute. And finally, a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court, in what I think really will be one of the most significant Supreme Court immigration decisions in a long time, simply said, that's what the law said in 96. There can be no class-wide, nationwide injunctions by anyone other than the Supreme Court on these statutory tools that Congress gave the administration to enforce the immigration law. And so this was in a previous ruling, but it was also applied in this ruling, basically. But they just decided that relatively recently. Why they didn't decide this two decades ago? Who knows, but better late than never. So what this means in the future, say there's a future Republican administration that's trying to do things that a judge in San Francisco doesn't like, he's no longer going to be able to issue injunctions? What if he just does, and then what does the administration do, ignore it? He or she could only issue an injunction against the particular party to the lawsuit, an individual in other words, this person you can't deport or whatever, this but exact not everybody person. under this Not a class, not nationwide. And if it's done, the government can just appeal and get it overturned. And so in my mind, actually, that's a little further than what Congress intended. The House committee report to the 96 bill very clearly said, we meant to bar injunctions, courts issue before they decide the ultimate merits of the case. We didn't say courts couldn't issue injunctions after they decide the merits of the case. In any event, the Supreme Court, it's a categorical bar. doesn't matter if it was if before the merits or after a judge decides on the merits. Okay. No injunction. So if this had been issued, say, in 2015, the Trump administration's life would have been a lot easier. A lot easier. And I remember when I was there for a few months, I commented that wow, pretty much everything I work on gets enjoined within a few days, but there's there's this one regulation we did, no one sued yet. The next day, someone sued. So I I, I just- You jinxed it. I I jinxed it. Yeah, right. So Art, you mentioned what they did decide, but give a little more specifics on what they didn't decide, because this was a narrow decision. The piece I wrote for National Review, I referred to them as having punted some of these issues, the most important issues. 
what are the issues that they punted on? And is this likely to end up back before the Supreme Court in not too long? Yeah. And, you know, it's important to note that the, the case title is, of course, Biden versus Texas. And it said this a number of times before I realized what I was saying at the heart of Texas is uh, not remain in Mexico per se, but rather two other provisions in the Immigration and Nationality Act. Under Section 235B of the Immigration and Nationality Act, DAHS is required to detain illegal migrants and all arriving aliens who appear to be inadmissible to the United States, detain them from the time that they're caught through their processing until a final determination is made on whether they should be admitted into the United States or alternatively whether they should be removed. This is a provision that is ancient in the law. It actually goes back to 1903. It goes back to the uh, days of steamships because, you know, when somebody would come on a ship, they would be inspected at the port. The port inspector would determine whether they were admissible or not. And if they weren't admissible, they were then held if they wanted to have a review of that decision for the review. If they wanted to go home, they were just put on the next ship home. And by releasing individuals, as the Biden administration has been doing, it gives those people who enter illegally the benefit of the bargain. You enter the United States to live and work here indefinitely, and these individuals are being released to live and work in the United States indefinitely, which is the opposite of what Congress said. But the court didn't reach that issue. The other provision is Section 212D5A of the INA, which allows DHS to parole on a case-by-case basis and only on limited circumstances, urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit, aliens into the United States. That very narrow case-by-case analysis has been turned into a almost release of aliens at the southwest border. In fact, Elizabeth Prelegar, the Solicitor General of the United States during the oral arguments in Texas, said it's a significant public benefit to release certain aliens into the United States so that we can hold other ones. It's the exact opposite of what the law says. It's what the law has never said. And it's probably the biggest issue that's going to have to be resolved by the lower courts to which this case has been remanded. Right. So just to be clear for listeners, parole is not criminal parole. What it means is you're released provisionally into the U.S. even though you have no right to be here. And that they are, the administration is releasing thousands, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people on parole. And this ruling, uh, the Remain in Mexico ruling, didn't rule on whether that's legitimate or not. So, in fact, Chief Justice Roberts specifically said in his ruling that we're not deciding on this, we're just deciding on a narrow question. So, George, what happens now? This goes now to lower court, right, to have them look at it again. Yeah, the Biden administration can pretty much immediately stop using MPP, though, you know, it was sort of a sham anyway. They were using it to such a limited extent just to mollify the judge. Right. I looked up the numbers, actually. There were something like 1.2 million encounters over past six months from December through May, and 5,000 people had been put into MPP. So basically, it was just for show. Exactly. And, and it's a shame because once the Title 42 authorities go away. Which is what, just for- Oh, I'm sorry. That's the ability to expel aliens during the COVID pandemic so as not to further spread the disease. Which doesn't require any hearings. There's no detention. There's no nothing. They just bounce them back out of the country. It's totally outside the strictures of the immigration law. It's a public health law immediately sent back. Once that's gone, 
the country is going to be in even more serious trouble if we don't have MPP. We're hosed. Yeah, DHS <laughs> estimates that 18,000 illegal migrants a day are going to show up at the southwest border once MPP is lifted. That would mean that we would get 5 million new illegal migrants in the United States. And of course, that would put the Biden administration even further in the hole with respect to detention. The Biden administration has asked Congress for just 25,000 detention beds in 2023. You're talking about 5 million people showing up and you got 25,000 beds. There's not going to be any room at all for holding those individuals. Interestingly, they along those lines, it's almost like the person who kills his parents and then asks for mercy from the court because he's an orphan. Because they're saying, well, we don't have any room to put these people, so we have to let them go. Oh, and by the way, we're asking for less space to hold people. It's even worse than that. Another provision in Lamar Smith and Alan Simpson's 96 legislation requires now DHS every year to tell Congress how much money it needs to detain every alien who the law says needs to be detained. Right. To my knowledge, this administration, no administration has ever sent those required reports to Congress, something which the committees, especially possibly if the Republicans take control of the House, might want to remind the administration they have an obligation to provide. Although the answer then is, or what? Good question. Uh, contempt? Who knows? No money shall, the salary of the uh, DHS secretary shall not be paid. Although it seems to me there's there's going to be so many things, he's not going to get a salary for the rest of his uh, time in office unless he's impeached, which comes more quickly. Well, Dory, he, he could just help some friends get some EB-5. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, he, he's done it before. But all of this raises some important points and suggests that perhaps MPP wasn't the best vehicle that the states could use to seek to get the sort of enforcement at the border. Just to go back to what the states were saying, what they're the saying, states that are suing the Biden administration. The two state plaintiffs in this case, which was Texas and Missouri. And the reason that they had standing to bring this suit at all was their argument, which no court has actually really disputed, that you know so many illegal migrants are being released into the United States and into the state of Texas in particular, that it increases the fiscal costs on Texas significantly, tens of millions of dollars. In addition- That's an injury done to them, which means they have standing, they're allowed to bring a lawsuit. They have standing- In other words, whereas you and I would not have standing to bring a lawsuit like this. No, you're not going to see a case called Precorian versus Biden, no matter how much you want to bring one. But Texas actually does have significant costs that it accrues that it's suffering because of the Biden administration's policies. For that reason, and since they do have standing, a better vehicle for them to bring this case is a completely separate law outside the Immigration and Nationality Act, and that's the Secure Fence Act of 2006. We think of that being a law that was meant to erect fences, but the fences were really a means to an end, not an end in itself. The end, as stated by Congress and the requirement that they placed on the DHS secretary, was to gain operational control of the border. They gave the secretary six months to gain operational control of the border and to maintain that operational control. Unless there be any doubts, and this is a literalist court that likes to follow the rule of the law, Congress spelled out what operational control meant. It meant preventing the entry of any unlawful migrant from coming into the United States. It's important to note that the provision that bars injunctive relief doesn't have anything at all to do with 
this requirement in the Secure Fence Act. It's actually outside of the sections of the INA to which that limitation applies. So I could definitely see a situation in which the states next file a mandamus action where they demand that the law be enforced and they demand that this provision in the Secure Fence Act in particular be enforced because, and this is important for the listeners to understand, the reason why we have a border crisis is because the Biden administration expressly does not have a policy to deter illegal entrants. In fact, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Fox News Sunday on May 1st was asked specifically whether the Biden administration was doing anything to limit the number of illegal entrants. And his response was, we are attempting to create safe, orderly pathways for aliens to get their legal rights. In other words, no, they're not trying to deter illegal aliens. They want to facilitate asylum applications for any and all foreign nationals who can make it to the dry land of the United States. That is their policy, not deterrence, not at all. And that has tragic effects, such as the death in the tractor trailer of those migrants who were enticed here. Yeah, essentially enticed here, because if you get past the border, you're de facto home free but you have to get past the border first. So George, if I can ask you, the two important questions that the Supreme Court basically punted on, is the detention mandate actually a mandate or not? And then a related question of, does the president, any president, have the right to just release people en masse into the United States? Those now go back to what? The circuit court or what happens now? Well, I think they go back to the district court. Okay. I think the precise question it has to answer is, whether the second Mayorkas memo terminating MPP was done properly pursuant to the Administrative Procedure Act. Right. My concern is that that could be answered without necessarily addressing the questions of whether parole, this can be done. So there's nothing else at issue there. In other words- potentially, maybe there's a way to get these questions answered as part of the litigation, but I could also see the APA issue being decided without final resolution of these extremely important questions as as you and Art have laid out. Interesting. I mean, how likely do you think that is, though? I mean, presumably, whatever they decide, it's going to end up reaching the Supreme Court again, right? Presumably, yeah. And for the Administrative Procedure Act, the issues, I guess, would be whether notice was required, whether before doing this, the administration had to get comments from the public right, over right. three- Procedural stuff. Procedural stuff. to jump through. But also whether the memo was arbitrary and capricious, whether there was a reasoned basis in the memo for terminating MPP. It's possible that in order to reach that conclusion, whether the memo was gobbledygook or was reasoned analysis, you have to answer the questions about can parole be used for everyone and anyone. Right, right. Or conceivably not is what you're saying. That's interesting. Yeah. What do you think, Ern? A simple housekeeping matter. First, it goes back to the uh, circuit court. Then the circuit court will kick it down to the district court. So it'll it's six one half dozen the other. Full employment for judges. But the APA questions are actually really compelling because on June the 6th, about 42, 43 days after the oral arguments, the Department of Justice filed an errata sheet that contained corrections to certain documents that have been submitted to the court. Part of that errata sheet was an attachment to the explanation memo that went along with the second MPP termination. And part of that was, look, 
what we're doing in releasing these people isn't any different than what any administration ever did. Here are the numbers. And then they had to come back on June the 6th and say, well, those numbers weren't exactly correct. A lot more people were detained before. And, you know, a lot of people have been released into the United States by the Biden administration. So that is clearly erroneous, arbitrary and capricious issue. They may send Mayorkas back to the drawing board on the memo itself and say, look, you know, we know that your facts are wrong. You admitted that they were wrong. Again, these are minor facts in a major memo, but they're still pretty fundamental ones. The other ones are, again, issues that we just discussed. The Biden administration's contention is that it has unfettered ability to release aliens on parole and that there is no detention mandate. So, you know, those would get wrapped up into this memo because those actually are part of the findings in the MPP termination memo. Look, we're not under any obligation to detain these people and we have the ability to release them. Thus, it's perfectly fine to terminate. Oh, so I see what you mean. Yeah, because what the law requires is either they all have to be detained or they have to be weighed to wait in Mexico. The third option being a very limited, narrow opening for parole. And that if they're going to end MPP, they have to explain is what you're suggesting. Exactly. In a memo ending MPP, you would have to explain what your thinking is and what, how you're going to comply with the law. Sure. I mean, you know, the court said, look, remain in Mexico is discretionary. They have the discretionary to do it or not. They still have to explain, however, why they are undoing a prior administrative order. And that's important. It's important for people to understand. I think that most Americans believe that when a new administration comes in, they could just tear up whatever policy the last one had and do whatever they want. What George was getting to is when a new administration comes in, if they want to reverse a policy, they actually have to go through the same tortuous process that they went to, to implement the policy to begin with. They have to show why the prior policy was wrong, why it's not a good idea, why, you know, it wasn't well thought through. Mayorkas actually had to admit, look, MPP worked. It actually cut down on the number of illegal migrants in the United States, which is the big problem that they're facing. But as this conversation that we're having right here shows, this is part of the reason why MPP may not have been the best vehicle. There are other vehicles in the law. In other words, for Texas to have used to sue the administration. Absolutely. And, you know, now that injunctions are off the table, mandamus is on the table in my mind. And those states that want to oppose this should force the Biden administration to actually enforce the law. Everything we're discussing is salient, is relevant, and is fundamental to such an argument. George, if you could just, without going into the whole thing, what are some of the abuses we've seen in parole? If you give the two-minute version, because you have a, we have a paper on our site, cis.org, on parole. Congress gave the administration parole power in 1952. It was conceived to be a very narrow power in very specific case-by-case -case urgent situations. Someone needs to be brought to the U.S. for medical care. It was never intended to be used to just allow classes of aliens into the United States for which Congress did not provide in the law that they could come in. Starting with President Eisenhower, pretty much every administration, with the notable exception of the Trump administration, has abused the parole power to varying degrees. Basically, to freelance their own immigration policy. Yeah, you know, there's no, Congress never created a entrepreneur visa program. Why don't we create an entrepreneur parole program? There's no basis for it in the law. We'll just parole these people in. And 
even worse, the administration at one point decided someone doesn't actually even have to be outside the country for us to parole them in. We we can start paroling illegal aliens who are already in the country. We'll give them parole too. Kind of retroactively paroling them in. Yeah. So if there's a class of illegal aliens, Congress refuses to give them amnesty. Well, we can't give them green cards. The administration will give them this quasi-temporary parole status that lasts forever. Which brings a work permit with social security number and a driver's license and what have you. And would you say, I mean, either one of you, I'd love to hear from this. You said every administration other than Trump has abused the parole power. Is this the most sweeping abuse of the parole power? Could you think about it that way? or? Well, I mean, certainly the creation of our refugee system in 1980 was directly based on Congress's getting fed up with various administrations, allowing in tens, hundreds of thousands of quote-unquote refugees as parolees. And that's why the refugee program was created, certainly- To sort of exercise some control and some systematization to exactly, it, basically? Exactly. According to the numbers that I've seen, every administration, when they have released aliens apprehended at the border, a majority of those aliens were released on parole. And even the Ninth Circuit has recognized this is a complete mockery of what Congress intended in 1952. In 1996, Lamar Smith again tried to rein in abuses of the parole power. They go on, and hopefully the Supreme Court will at some point now or at some other point step in and say, this is not authorized by statute. This is not what parole is for. Maybe when this case works its way back up, potentially, to the Supreme Court, in other words. Well, it all depends on Kavanaugh. So. Right. Well, that's true. Yeah, exactly. I think one thing that's a lot more likely to happen, though, is if Republicans capture control of one or more chambers in the next Congress, they'll simply, in a, a authorization, appropriation, what they will say is no monies may be appropriated to parole these individuals in. If the Biden administration keeps doing it, that's a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act. And that is something that courts are very quick to uh, jump on. The administration would be spending money that Congress said you're not allowed to spend. And that's, they actually take that seriously. So interesting. Okay. Well, thank you, George and Art, for this. And when this comes back to the Supreme Court next year, we'll have you back to talk about it then. Thanks. That's it for this week. No uh, closing commentary. And we will have another podcast. We haven't decided yet on our regular schedule or it'll be the following week. But either way, uh, we hope you tune back in. Remember to rate and review us if your podcast platform allows that. And if you have any thoughts, complaints, compliments, whatever, feel free just to email me directly at msk at cis.org. Thank you. <laughs>